I'm Brandon Carey. I'm Jason Grady. This is the Medic Class Citizen Podcast. Oftentimes, the AEDs are in totally different parts of a community, and the arrests are happening in a totally different part. Um, and that just didn't seem like a smart way to try to solve this problem if you don't have access to the technology when and where it's needed. So that's really where this concept of, of the four-minute city came about is when we figured out that, hey, we can, through a connected system, get data to the right people at the right time. We can help deliver AEDs potentially more effectively. Um, this concept of the four-minute city came about. And what it is, it's essentially going into a community, assessing um, the needs of that community and the state of cardiac arrest response in that community and deciding we're going to deploy two, three, 400 devices, depending on the, the, the needs of that community in a strategic manner. So not only are we going to connect these or deploy these devices, they're going to be connected into the 911 center, like Rory described. We're going to be able to get the data for them to EMS down to the downstream providers where the patients are actually transported at the hospital and really try to make um, a connected system of response in that community and, and help that Avives AED can be a catalyst for that. And so um, in, in a number of communities, we are deploying 400 devices or 300 devices based on where the data tells us to deploy them. So you look at where the cardiac arrests are happening and then create a deployment strategy of we're going to put these in the places where they're actually needed the most. And, um, and that's that's the only way that we do that is if we create a centralized or top-down program where the funding or the, the deployment of them comes from one body, and then we're actually deciding with the community um, which hands to put the devices in versus going and asking business X or school Y, can you buy an AED? Um, we're actually putting them where we think they're going to make the biggest impact. Well, and that's something that I want to applaud you gentlemen for, because the beautiful piece about this entire model is that you are essentially embedding yourself into this community and you are assessing the culture of CPR response and uh, of the knowledge of cardiac arrest. And that's not a small feat. <laughs> I mean, that's that's very that's easy to say. It's an incredible. Yeah. And from our offline conversations, I don't know if you can verbalize how much work that is but i mean tell us tell us some of the strategy behind you know how do you just show up into a community and say hey this is uh yeah this looks good this looks like a good spot <laughs> um so i think um there are a few key tenants that that we really focused on but but to even get there to pick a handful that we've picked to start with um, me and my colleague, Micah, who, who leads commercialization for us. I mean, we traveled around the country for 12 plus months um, and visited probably 70 to 80 cities and counties across the country. Um, and, and really the key tenants that we looked for was first and foremost, above anything, a culture of collaboration. Um, there are communities out there, it's sad to say, where you know, fire and EMS and 911 don't want to sit in the same room together and don't want to figure out how to solve problems to get there together. Um, we knew that wasn't going to work for us. We needed a place where people um, enjoyed working together. People enjoyed um, solving tough problems together because this is the toughest problem probably of them all to address. Um, so that was that was first and foremost number one. And then number two, a burning desire to do better. 
right? Mm. Um, not being accepting of the status quo, but wanting to say, hey, my community is going to be different. My community isn't going to you know, um, be the standard, hey, we save 10% of people and we're the national average. No, we want it to be 15. We want it to be 20. We want it to be 30%. And it's going to be a process to get there and it's going to be work and it's going to be hard, but we're going to be the difference maker in our part of the country. And we're going to be the, the lighthouse that's making an impact. So how did you identify those? Was this a lot of boots on the ground work at conferences or uh, how did you develop that the network in order to identify the cities that you wanted to target? Um, I called my friends and uh, they just introduced me to all these fire chiefs. You know, it was great. No, <laughs> that's not how it happened. But, uh, um, so so number one, through through um, my nonprofit network and, mm. and the work that I had done there, I kind of had these champions that were local stakeholders in every state, right, who knew the local EMS coordinator, knew the local EMS chief, the fire chief, the 911 telecommunicator. They were the spokesperson for cardiac arrest in their community. And so that was a huge advantage for us is where we could give them a call and say, hey, guys, I don't know if this is going to work, but this is a concept we have. And we want to go and try and um, educate others about this concept and see if there's buy-in and interest in what we're doing. So definitely went to them. There were some trade shows, you know, that was a natural place to really to really get um, the attention of fire chiefs or leadership um, in public safety. Um, but, you know, Rory, myself and, and, and the team were really fortunate to also have some great advisors in the space. Um, people who have um, been in the cardiology space, been in the EMS space, and um, they were really instrumental in providing those warm introductions. Because um, otherwise, we're just two guys from California, right? Who are like, hey, cool, we can do this and technology and yay. But um, but it was through those warm introductions, whether it was through our nonprofit partners um, and friends or our advisors that really got us in the door. And then when, what we realized immediately was if we got in the, in the door with leadership in that community, public safety leadership, what very quickly happened without us asking is the fire chief in that city would call the fire chief in the neighboring city and say, hey, you got to talk to these guys about Amazing. this concept because it can make an impact. That's and cool. then that's how it kind of spread. Like, So we may have had 10 conversations we organized, but honestly, the way we got to 70 or 80 was, you know, the, the fire department in Jackson, Tennessee said, go talk to the guys in Memphis. And the um, the guys in Pennsylvania said, I want to do this in five counties in central Pennsylvania. So thanks for talking to me. But those guys better be next. And so please go talk to them as well. So, um, you know, I think that's where we figured out like, oh, wait, this might actually be something. And this might be a really unique way to deploy defibrillators in a community um, because it's fundamentally different um, uh, than, than what's being done today. And most importantly, it's data driven, which is the most important missing element in my mind today. So <clears throat> one of the uh, the guys we've actually had on this podcast um Dr. Michael Kurz, um, mm -hmm. who I know you guys are very familiar with. Um, we, we, he has uh, in the past uh, described this device um, not as an AED, but as a data collection tool that occasionally delivers a shock, <laughs> um, which is uh, is somewhat or, or as absolutely unique from others. Rory, how do you use this these data that is that's being um, collected by this AED to um, better the deployment, better patient care, and kind of lead to more iterations in the future? Well, I think one of the first steps is having data. 
Um, one of the big missing gaps today is there is no data about true, like from the device, from what has actually happened, it's exceedingly limited for what you can get. And so if we're talking about deployments, right, we're going to learn a lot as we deploy our first communities in our cities. But the difference is that we can iterate on that, right? We can see where each cardiac arrest call is located. We can see if uh, that aligns with how we've deployed these devices or whether we need to adjust so that we have more density in certain areas or less density in other areas of a community. We can refine our kind of estimates for how many devices you need in an area. We can refine our estimates for uh, the workflow that is needed in a 911 telecommuter's you know, uh, dispatch sequence to get to the point of, is this a cardiac arrest? And press that button faster to save a minute or a minute and a half here and two minutes there in the process. We can adjust the instructions that we're giving to people uh, based on what we find from the field. And so in, in kind of every little element of this, um, we are able to uh, adjust, collect that data, and understand how how these cardiac arrests are happening, where they're happening, and what the best deployment strategies that we can have are. After that device use, one of the biggest things we do is offload the data from the incident, right? So we get the incident report that is captured from electrode pads being applied to that patient, that initial heart rhythm that, that was there much before hopefully the ambulance even arrives. Um, and that's another report that we're getting that we are sending to the appropriate stakeholders. But it's another huge tool in understanding, right? One of the big, you know, um, pieces of information that often is lacking when you when when you're kind of going downstream from the AED is what was the initial rhythm of that of that person, and that's so hugely critical to what that patient is going to get as follow up treatment and even immediate treatment. And so, just having that, right, and having that in a systematic way, and having that in a um, you know, re re refinable way and improvable way, I think is going to make a huge difference in, in the way that we respond to cardiac arrests. Yeah, Rory, I'll add one thing, if you guys don't mind, just around the, um, when you sit, when, at least from, from my, from me observing, um, cardiac arrest from a public safety, um, lens, right. When, when I would sit in an ambulance and we would, we would go on ride alongs, and the handoff points between each stakeholder I found were full of a lot of statements where I think they were down for this long. I think that we delivered two shocks. I think that this happened. I think that there were very little I knows uh, stated, right? And I think that that's where you can start creating connectivity between each of these stakeholders where we can start having some I knows about what happened before EMS got there to complete the story and complete the picture of that arrest, which ultimately I think helps downstream care. You guys, Brandon and Jason know a lot better than we do here, but um, but we think that that can help provide a more complete picture of that arrest. Everything from when did the button get pushed in 911? When did the first AED get there? When was the first shock delivered? How many shocks were delivered? All the way down to um, to you know the, the when EMS arrives on scene. And so, um, that's a big part of the, the piece of the puzzle to us as well as trying to create a complete story for that arrest, not just from EMS onward, EMS arrival onward. Another and underappreciated aspect of this is, is even just knowing where these devices are at all. You know, one of the things that can often get missed is you might sell a device to a particular place. It might be there, but its status, its actual location can change. It can be something that nobody actually keeps up with. It can 
you know, it just, it just is there. And so even just little things before the emergency of knowing that your devices are healthy, knowing where they are, knowing that they haven't moved or they haven't had some thing happen to them um, is a huge deal because it means that you have a always active and always accurate repository of where your devices are, um, how they may need to be you know, re-distributed re, um, and, and things of that nature. And so I think that would be another piece that I'd add to that is just even before we even get to the 911 call, having a system that is ready to actually respond to it in a, in a thorough way. Yeah, and I think your your point too, and I want to make clarify that for the people listening that maybe are on the hospital side or more on the definitive care side. Um, and Samir, you said a lot of things of, uh, I think this, I think this, well, there's a lot in EMS that we know. And that we know this, yet when that information gets passed on, it gets passed on as a, I think this, I think this. So then when it gets to the interventional cardiologist specifically, it becomes a, I think this. But if we go back two steps, we knew it. Yeah. Um, uh, and so it was a known thing. of, And so being able to get that information uh, definitively uh, can absolutely um can absolutely makes it make a difference in that patient care. So because this is connected, um, and you may have mentioned this, but I just want to um, make sure we state it again. When is that information available? There are certain pieces of information that are available in near real time. So certain elements about um, you know all of this are available right away, um, and even before the ambulance arrives, while the device is being used, some of it's available. Um, other information comes immediately after the use of the product. So some of it uh, takes a little bit more processing, a little bit longer to, to deal with. And so um, we're talking within minutes though, uh, after a AED product use, you're getting, you're getting full pictures. Um, and so some of it's real time or near real time, some of it's immediately after a device is used, um, but it's, it's fairly quick. And more specifically, Jason, if you break that up, like what's real time that we're sharing? Re really near real time is what's going to the 911 telecommunicator, right? They're, they're seeing the location of the AED um, as it's en route. They're seeing that it's been powered on, that the pads have been placed, that it, they're in a shockable rhythm now or a non-shockable rhythm. They're seeing that one shock, two shocks were delivered. That's maybe the real time communication of, or near real time communication of this. Um, during the actual emergency, or, or um, I should say maybe from the EMS standpoint of this, um, when you guys um, get to the scene, you're going to put your pads, you're going to put your monitor on this patient, uh, and you power off our AED. At that point, we're we're basically now working to, to generate this incident report and send it up to the cloud as fast as we possibly can for anyone to be able to access at that point. So on our AED, you've got a unique incident ID that shows up after you power off the device. You've got a QR code. If you scan that QR code, shortly thereafter, you'll have an incident report um, with the full ECG, um, which in every step that's happened before that during the use of that device that's available to you. So that's maybe not real time until you know that happens once you actually power off the device, we generate that full compiled report. But the real time piece of it is, we're getting data to telecommunicators who we think are really the first line of response, the first first responders in this. And we're trying to equip them what they, with what they need while they're speaking to EMS. You guys, when you get there, can either scan that QR code. You can pass that incident ID downstream to healthcare providers and or you can even press a little arrow 
and it'll show you the basic details of what's happened. Hey, we delivered a 150 joule adult shock. This thing's been on and activated for three minutes and 64, can't have 67 seconds, three minutes and 47 <laughs> seconds. <laughs> um, uh, you know, and you know, that basic information is available to you guys. Um, but the full incident report is available after you powered off and you scan that QR code um, and, and you can access it then. So take us through a little bit of the four minute city project and um, kind of the extent that you've gone to you kind of introduce to us. Um, can you kind of introduce Dr. Michael Kurz and his involvement with this project and kind of what your vision is uh, as these AEDs are deployed in these four minute cities are formed? Um, how are you going to evaluate the success of this? Absolutely. So, so right now we've got at least three communities that'll be involved in, in research, uh, in evaluating this program and, and really that the deployment of a, of a connected system with an AED in a community. And those three communities are Jackson, Tennessee. We've got, um, Forsyth County, Georgia and Cumberland County, Pennsylvania. Um, Dr. Michael Kurz, um, who is a leader in the, in the resuscitation space from a research perspective, incredibly well published. Um, he's a, an emergency medicine, I could call it guru. Um, he's played every role. That's he's been a, a medical term. director. He's been a he's been in fire. He's been in on the EMS side. He he understands the full picture um, uh, of of emergency medicine, but also cardiac arrest specifically is what he's really dove into. Um, and Dr. Kurz will be one of the PIs for the study um, that we're going to run across these three communities to evaluate, um, are we improving outcomes here? And this is where data is super important, right, guys? If you have, um, if you don't have the data, um, one, one of the four pillars to, to, to our uh, implementation um, that we think about in a four-minute city is constantly collect data, analyze data, and then iterate. Right, that is going to be one of the key pieces to the puzzle here, and so um, we we're really excited to look at baseline what's been going on in these communities pre-deployment, deploy the system, learn quickly, iterate the system, um, and then look at the outcomes 12, 24, 36 months later in those communities. Uh, this isn't an overnight success in these communities. It won't be. Um, we we aren't going to magically put 300 AEDs in a community and response times are going to drop to four minutes the next day. Um, it, it requires education. It requires um, effort and and diving in with those communities. And but we hope to see six, 12, 18, 24 months later um, some really exciting save stories and some really exciting movement and outcomes in each of these communities. One thing I will say about each community that they have in common, Brandon, I mentioned, you know, kind of those two pillars, right? Collaboration and a burning desire to do better. Um, they all have, and they're all fine with me sharing, they all have below national average survival rates. Um, and um, uh, that is exciting to us. And I think exciting to the community stakeholders, because we want to take that below national average survival rate and make it 18%, 20%, and see that happen pretty quickly here. And so um, there's tremendous opportunity and there's tremendous desire collectively to do better and ultimately research the impact of, of this deployment. Now you've given us uh, some insight on the selection of those communities. Are any of those communities, so to speak, turnkey ready or what type of preparations and work have you had to put in 
in those communities in order to get them ready for this next stage when the AEDs are here? If it was turnkey, it wouldn't be fun. That's um, right. That's right. That's, uh, that's the work. No, I don't think. I don't think. Um, uh, none of those communities, nor is any community, probably ready to deploy something like this without work. Right? It's totally different than than how we've responded to or um, thought about responding to cardiac arrest before. Thought about deploying AEDs. Thought about you know AEDs. You know being. Uh, or interacting with AEDs in a specific community, whether it be on the public safety side or even on the community side. Like you got to educate the community that, hey, 911 is going to be sending people with an AED to you. You're not on your own, right? That's a whole another education piece of this puzzle. Um, that's not just about deploying AEDs in a community. And so, so there's really four four pieces to the puzzle that that we think about um, when it comes to an implementation. And and this is grunt work. It requires getting your hands dirty. And it requires getting in the community. Um, number one is um, how how are we going to deploy these devices and where and and how right and uh, the traditional model of putting an AED in a building that closes at 5 p.m. and that nobody can access is not going to work here if we're going to try to make an impact right where do most arrests happen 70 to 80 percent of arrests happen in the home and in residential settings right and so how are we going to get AEDs in that part of a community more quickly and more often. So getting creative about, is that first responders taking them home with them in their personal lives? Is it um, providers, healthcare providers having these uh, available to them? Is it um, people who are you know, civically inclined and want to engage with their community, becoming a part of a group um, that has these AEDs and are trained to respond? Um, are we going to put them in the hands of DPW vehicles, right, that are mobile and dynamic around a community and that aren't just static in a building? The that that is a piece of this, but that is there is um, you have to create a context, you know, culturally contextualized deployment in each of those communities. And that's a word that Dr. Kurz uses all the time. It's what you do in um, Jackson and what you do in Birmingham, Alabama, and what you do in uh, Georgia are probably different. They're not the exact same deployment strategy. So where and how are you going to effectively deploy these in that community? Second is, how are you going to integrate this into the public safety workflow? You guys know this better than I do, but you've seen one EMS system, you've seen one EMS system. You've seen one nine on one center, you've seen one nine on one center. You have to find a way to make this work for public safety in that community. So Rory you know, says, they can push this button. Well, it's not that simple, right? <laughs> they're, they're dealing with a call and you've got to figure out how to change the workflow they've been doing for years to suddenly have this button that they're pushing to activate AEDs, right? And in all these communities, they have the desire and have figured out and want to do it, but there's work there to figure out with local stakeholders, how are we going to implement this into your current process that you have today? How are we going to have you scan this QR code when EMS shows up and get data to the hospital? All of these things are new. Third is kind of mass community education and awareness and making the community aware of this program, aware of CPR, aware of cardiac arrest, um, and that being a piece of the puzzle. And then the fourth, like I mentioned, is constant evaluation of the data so that we can constantly get better even after we deploy the program. All of that is not simple. It requires a lot of work and a lot of emphasis with each community. And that's what we've really been trying to focus on over the last couple of years. So let me ask you, uh, Rory, one of the things that we have talked about a lot on this podcast and thing, something that I'm um, very um, passionate about is understanding disparities of care. How can 
how can this type of data help us understand where these disparities are and how can it address those? Well, I think it really comes back to the the deployment strategies, even from the beginning, and then the refinements that you make along the way. Um, unfortunately, with these communities that we are working with and with other ones that we are preliminarily working with, we can already see it. If you look at the map, literally, by by zip code, by by you know city uh, ordinance codes and, and things of that nature, you can see survival rate differences and you can plot it on a map and you can align it really, really closely to uh, socioeconomic disparities. And that's, that's heartbreaking, right? Yeah. Um, but it's because in a lot of cases, um, the you know more advantaged areas are going to be the ones that have invested a little bit more into things uh, that could help them, including AEDs and other things like that. So one of our deployment strategies and one of the things that we focus on in our research with Dr. Kurz is uh, affecting disparities, right? Because if we have a map of, you know, all the cardiac arrests that are happening, we're not picking those, you know, locations by, you know, zip codes and, and other, you know, codes like that. We're picking it by where in this community do we need the most uh, devices and where can we have the most effect? And so I think one of the challenges that we have in the deployment and one of the, you know, true um, you know, cultural tests and differences between, like Smear mentioned, Jackson, Tennessee versus Birmingham, Alabama versus Pennsylvania versus Georgia versus California is um, how you deploy in different areas within a community is different, right? Because in certain areas, uh, some things will work very effectively and in other areas of the community, different things will work very effectively. And so I think that from the onset, you have data that we can collect that shows those disparities and shows areas that we can focus on to uh, level set and improve across the board. As you implement the program, you have a lot of really interesting opportunities to evaluate how you're doing based on that baseline that you already have. Because you know what the baseline was, you can see, have I improved it equally? Have I improved it so that we're more level now? Have I improved it uh, just so that the better places in the community are just better now and the worst places stay worse, right? That's obviously not what we want, but you can iterate based on that information and you can adjust what you're doing to try to address what you do want, which is that more level setting so that you're affecting outcomes in all areas of the community, not just in you know the more affluent ones. All right. So thank you both so much for walking us through uh, the story, the four minute city and the vision for Abive Solutions, uh, what would we have to do in order to get a uh, kind of a sneak peek product uh, product review here? Is that possible? Uh, it's definitely possible. Yeah, the um, we can we can pull one just you know out of the backpack. Uh, so if Perfect. I if I just grab one here, uh, it's in the backpack. How nice! Isn't, isn't that convenient? Um, this is the Avive Connect AED. So if we just look at it, you know, off the bat, um, the design intent, the whole product idea here is to make a device that is small, that is lightweight, that looks and feels like something that you would be comfortable picking up and using. Yeah. Um, the device has a few things, right? When you just look at it at first, it's got a screen here on the front that outside of an emergency gives you a few different uh, things. So you've got 
you know, device information, you've got training capabilities, you've got settings that you can adjust, uh, you have notifications that you can receive. There's a whole slew of things that you get from that. The AED itself has um, a few different uh, features and functions that you may expect or that you may not. Uh, there's a power button to turn it on, right? Uh, it's an important piece of it. Uh, you have a Spanish language button that you can press to change it to a Spanish audio instruction language. You've got a child button that will reduce the energy from a 150 joule biphasic shock down to a, a 50 joule biphasic shock for children. You've got the electrode pads that are stored here in this tab. Uh, which you can remove uh, and they will you know, be placed on a patient in that case. Um, and then you've got, uh, you know, like rechargeability. So you've got a USB-C port right here on the side that you can plug the device into and it'll charge up in a few hours, just like your iPhone would. Um, so all of those things are really geared at making this device accessible, making it approachable, making it have all of the clinical functions that you would expect out of an AED, of course, uh, and making it something that, um, you know, you, you would be, proud and, and happy to own. <laughs> um, if we want to do a demonstration here, um, we can do a couple things. We can uh, simulate a nearby cardiac arrest like we've uh, talked about, um, uh, the kind of this, this backbone of the four minute city program. Um, and we can also you know, turn the device on and, and see how it works. So in this situation, right, say that you have a a uh, person who has called 911 because there's a you know person who's unresponsive, not breathing normally. And so they've called 911 with a potential cardiac arrest emergency. And we've gone through the initial you know 911 operator talking to that person, going down that decision tree, realizing that they should press that button that we were talking about earlier. That's the launch of IVE button. When they go and press that cardiac button, nearby. Take this AED. they're going to receive an alert that looks like this. Cardiac so the AED... Is going to start AED. audibly alerting that you need Cardiac to bring this device nearby. and you're going to see a walk Take and drive time to that location. And so if you go Cardiac into that and you navigate to that emergency, you're going to get a map displaying navigating to emergency. trying to get the screen to look good here. You're going to get a map displaying. Uh, here's where you are and here's the location of the cardiac arrest patient is with an address on the top and a QR code that's scannable so that you can actually scan that with your own mobile phone if you would prefer to navigate, for example, if you're driving and it will open automatically in your native Google or Apple Maps. And so you have the address that you're going to, you have any notes that the 911 dispatcher might be sending to you, you have the map for the visual of your location combined with the patient's location, and you have the ability to indicate that you are at the scene which will allow the 911 operator to know that you're at the scene uh, and you know, help them get that information. So as I move with this device down the street towards that emergency location, my location will update on the map here locally so I can see it. Uh, and it will update on the uh, 911 dispatcher's tool so they can see your progress towards that emergency location. Wow, that's incredible. As you do that, as you accept that, and as you are moving, Will it cancel the other AEDs that are nearby or do those people continue to respond? Yeah, right now we don't cancel it off of one person who's coming. And the motivation behind that is um, things can happen, right? You might accept the emergency and get to that map and realize it's somewhere you didn't want to go or too long or something happens along the way that means you can't go anymore. And so we don't want to have... Uh, at least not initially, that kind of single point of failure and so much confidence in that one person that they're going to actually get there. 
um, that we're gonna we are gonna send multiple people if multiple people accept. Now, if we get this is one of those iteration things. If we get to the point where we have too many people showing up to a cardiac arrest, that is a fantastic problem to have, right? And we can notch that back and not select as many people to alert. And if we are doing that, we are succeeding. Yeah. Uh, and so, but right now in the initial, it's we got to get devices there. So yeah, I'd rather alert two or three in the hopes that one of them actually gets there. But it is still only going to alert the AEDs that are in a certain geographical radius from the caller? Right. So we are starting that as a one mile radius, basically. And so if you are within one mile of that uh, cardiac arrest, that's when your uh, device or your app will be alerted. Wow. If you're outside of that one mile radius, we consider that uh, you know too far. And so you would not get alerted. Uh, and again, if we learn that that's the correct distance or that that's the incorrect distance and we should adjust it, that's the beauty is that we can do that um, as we get the data back. The, so say that you've taken this device, you've navigated with the map, you've navigated to that patient's side, you arrive there, that's when you go and turn the device on. And so if, uh, should we walk through that or? Yeah, please, that'd be great. Yeah. So say you've gotten this device, uh, you've, you've seen the map, you've been able to navigate to the cardiac arrest patient's location, you have it here, and now it's time to use the device to help save that person's life. So to do that, um, we take the device, we press the power button, and we're gonna turn it on, and you're gonna hear the audio of, of the device, you know, prompting you on how to treat the patient. Powered on. Make sure 911 has been contacted. If the patient is under eight years old, you must press the child button on the top of the device. Pull the red tab to start emergency. Expose the patient's bare chest, including bra. So at this point, I'm gonna do a little voiceover. This is where the electrode pads are stored. It's a little hard to see in the video. Mm -hmm. um, but what we will do once the patient's chest is exposed, peel open the package you pulled from the device and take out the pads inside. You can have the uh, you know pads here, which you can uh, remove Look the seal for. Look at the picture for. on the red pad. Peel off the red pad from the white liner and firmly stick on the patient's bare skin, exactly as shown. So if I do that, I peel this off. I'm going to place it on my own chest. Peel off the blue pad from the white liner and firmly stick on the patient's bare skin, exactly as shown. So I'll do that with the blue pad now, right? So it knows which pad you pulled off and where the next one needs to directly go. directly on the patient's bare skin. Patient detected. Do not touch the patient or pads. Analyzing heart rhythm. Shock is not advised. It is now safe to touch the patient. Let's begin CPR. Stack both of your hands on the center of the patient's chest. If the patient is under eight years old, use one hand for compressions. Start compressing hard and fast on each beat. Push, push, push. So a couple of things here that I'll highlight just given the speed of things. Uh, the first is, you know, that was a shock not advised because as we all know, one of the features of the device is that it will analyze your heart rhythm and it will only allow you to deliver that defibrillation shock if you have a shockable one. So because I'm alive and well and I'm not in cardiac arrest, it will not deliver the shock to me. It will only do so to somebody in VFib or VTAC that's in cardiac arrest. We do two minutes of CPR after that shock or that shock not advised, uh, after which it will return to say, uh, do not touch the patient 
analyze the heart rhythm again, deliver the defibrillation shock if it's appropriate. So say that we go through this, say that it was a cardiac arrest patient, that we have shocked a couple of times and that EMS arrives, right? So now they are taking over the scene. They're going to put the monitor on that patient. They're going to remove this device. They're going to turn it off. One of the things we talked about was the incident data that gets transferred. So as soon as you turn that device off, you get a screen that has an incident ID number and a scannable QR code. That incident ID number can be punched in by whoever. It can be somebody back at the hospital. It can be somebody in the cath lab. It can be somebody uh, in the ambulance. It can be the 911 dispatcher. Anybody can punch in that incident ID number that's associated with this and receive the full report that we were discussing that has the ECG recorded from me um, you know, as, as a report that, that they have access to. You can also scan that QR code and it will pull that up directly uh, instead of punching in the instant ID. If you're at the scene, you have the device and you can scan it there. If you go to the more details uh, you know, screen, it's going to show you a few uh, bullet points. So uh, one of those would be the time since activation. Uh, one of those would be any uh, timestamps of analyses that happen. So if you had a shock delivered, it would tell you that. If you had a shock not advised, as in this case, it tells you that. So it gives you kind of a brief summary there um, of, of what happened. And then finally, one of the kind of underappreciated pieces of this is that it reminds you to return the device. So um, the device came from somewhere because you picked it up to go take it somewhere, right? And so it's going to give you the address and the contact information for who that device is registered to. Um, a, you should probably remember where you grabbed it from, but if you didn't, you know, it would tell you that, but more importantly, it prompts you that you got to go put it back. <laughs> um, and so it's also, you know, sending alerts to our systems that are notifying the owner of this device, because it's not always the owner of the device that will be using it, yeah. um, they, that device has been activated and that they have potentially some follow-ups uh, they, they might need to or want to do. So that's the kind of core use, right? You get that emergency alert. And that big red screen we saw that gives you the estimated time to the location. Pressing the accept button gives you the navigation map, which shows you the location of yourself and the location of the patient you're navigating to. As you move to that patient, that information is uploading back to the 911 dispatchers. So they can see your progress. When you arrive on the scene, you're able to power the device on. It gives you audio prompts to remove the pads and place them on the patient's bare skin. I've placed it just under my shirt here because of the demonstration. We don't need to get the shirts off or anything like that. Um, and then after doing so, you get uh, analysis, you get shock, you get CPR prompts. Once all of that is done, you power the device off. You're able to access that incident report via the incident ID number or the scannable QR code and even some of the information right there on the screen. And then that's that's really the you know the core workflow, we'll say, of when that emergency happens, what's going to happen within you know a we'll say 10 to 15 minute span. Okay. So, so one quick question I have that I, I really would like you to address is there something, two things very interesting about this on the instruction. Number one, there's video instruction of where to put your hands and kind of how to do it. The other is um, clear instruction. Uh, and I noticed a push, push, push. How much thought went into that? Is that just something that you decided or was that intentional? This one, in a lot of ways, is a parallel to the example Samir brought up earlier about the uh, intentional, um, if we look at the pad, you know, the intentional uh, depiction of a, of a woman uh, with, you know, with, with breasts on the pads. And in the same way, um, what we found in our many, many usability studies is that we always had the metronome. The metronome always kind of made sense of like, we should have some rate that you're compressing on to aid the user there. But 
people didn't necessarily make the connection of, oh, I'm supposed to be doing CPR. And then, oh, that's the beat that I'm supposed to be pushing to. Advanced people, people who kind of knew what they were doing, certainly did very immediately, right? But people who just like picked this up and have never heard of a defibrillator, never heard of cardiac arrest before in their life, it's not that automatic of a jump. And so we found that the push, 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 like prompts them into action. And so it's a push, 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 and they're like, oh, right, I'm supposed to be pushing at that, right? And that is an immediate, although seemingly obvious step. It really gets that person who's kind of frozen and like freaking out into an actual thing that they're doing. And so we found that that improved the usability dramatically and it wasn't inherently obvious, not something we started with. Um, it's kind of another example of those iterations that are very purposeful and, and those small details that make a little difference. Wow. That's fantastic. So just in, in closing a couple other um, just kind of technical questions. Um, this is obviously a portable device that you mentioned before has a charger. How long does it take to charge and how long um, does it last uh, with a full charge? The To charge the device, it takes uh, a few hours. So very similar to your phone, it takes a few hours to go from a battery dead to a full charge on that battery. Um, in terms of off the charger, right, you you take the device, you it's not plugged in, you got it in you know, your glove box or your car, you got it in a backpack. The life-saving AED battery will last you uh, eight and a half months uh, you know, in between those recharge cycles. And so um, you've got that pretty long period there um, where you can not have to worry about plugging in at all. Wow. And how many shocks can you get out of a, a charged, a full, fully charged battery? A fully charged will give you about 75 shocks. Um, and so, you, you know, that's uh, more than enough for, for any reasonable use case, we'll say. <laughs> And then kind of one last question with the technology and the connectivity, what is the advantage of having these connected as far as them doing, uh, do they do regular self-checks like other AEDs? And then how can someone manage these AEDs remotely or can they manage them remotely? Yeah. I mean, one of the beauties is, is it's fantastic to have the solution for when you need it in that emergency, but it better be ready to be used in that emergency. Otherwise it's just a brick on a wall. And so the device does do a self-check every night. It happens in the middle of the night. Um, and it does different levels of self-checks on a daily, weekly, monthly level, getting more and more rigorous. Every single night when it does those, it's going to send the um, self-check result up to our uh, management platform. We call it the Real Connect platform. And that's a tool where whether you own one device or other 100 devices or whether you own 1,000 devices, you can see the location and the statuses of your device uh, at any time. And so you can log on with your account and portal and you can see the locations, the statuses, any notifications for actions you might need to do, i.e. replace a cartridge when battery has a battery low, whatever it might be, it's going to send you a notification. And the premise there is that it's in a little bit more automated way to manage these devices as opposed to relying on people going to manually inspect them, which as we know, does not always happen, unfortunately. Wow. Well, we're going to close it up here, but I, we always want to give uh, an opportunity for the guests to, uh, you have just anything else you'd like to say or anything else, <laughs> any other points uh, that uh, you wish we would, we would have asked? I think maybe what I'll say is, um, you know, there we're, we're really um, excited that, that we're bringing new technology to the space. It's sorely needed. It's, it's been needed for decades now. Um, I think we're the first, uh, Rory and the team, we're doing the the first, uh, uh, we're doing a quick calculation. I think we're the first new company to receive 
an FDA approval for an AED um, in 20 years. And so, um, you know, that's a, it's a huge milestone for the team. We're really proud uh, to be here. Um, it's hard uh, to build um, technology that changes a paradigm that um, hopes to make an impact and make a difference, but um, uh, we're thrilled to, to now have an opportunity to go make an impact in communities and appreciate everyone's support along the way. One thing to add, I think the thing that I and I would probably think Samir as well and probably the whole team here is is most excited for in the coming year or just in the near future is we're going to have saved our first life in a very, very short period of time. And, you know, the company, if you go all the way back to, you know, my dorm room with Mosley's silly idea, going from that kind of just hodgepodge thing six years ago to now being in a position that in likely a matter of months we're gonna have been we're gonna have saved our first life is a is just an insane it's just an insane thing and, and I think it's it's I have I don't really have the words for it. I think I don't it's gonna be kind of like that initial conference where you don't appreciate it or you don't like really like internalize it until you until you see it and you feel it. But um, the idea that this crazy idea that came out of this brainstorming session turned into a company, turned into a full FDA clearance, turned into a device that's going to save the life of somebody that we can go and see in the hospital <laughs> is just the most crazy series of events that could have happened in my life in something that I think we are all so excited about. And um, it's going to be a really powerful moment. So that's that's what I'm most excited for uh, in the near future, and I think that's what the the team is most excited for in the near future. And that is beautiful. Wow. That is well, awesome. well said. Well said. In in closing, how can people find more about you? Pretty easy. Uh, go to our website www.avive.life, a v i v e dot life, and um, that's that's where you'll learn everything about us. Any socials? I don't know them. That's pretty bad. <laughs> We, I can tell you that we do have a, we do have all the TikTok. socials. We have a Facebook. We got a TikTok. We got an Instagram. We have. A you Twitter. do not have a TikTok. We have, we have a, TikTok. a TikTok. Check oh, us out. Oh man. We we learned not. We didn't know we had a TikTok, but then we learned that we have a TikTok, and so um, <laughs> and check us out in all those places. <laughs> nice. All right, we'll stick with the website. I think. Yeah. I <laughs> yeah. Well, gentlemen, this has been uh, this has been fascinating um, to see where this uh, you know we don't often get to see where this technology starts with with just brainstorming, um, but uh, a lot of us have great ideas. But to be able to uh, be those that actually implement them and disrupt uh, this industry, especially an industry that uh, is going to not only save lives, but uh, who knows the uh, generations that come from just one life saved. And I uh, appreciate your passion, appreciate your uh, your intelligence, your drive, um, and for uh, making uh, jobs like ours easier, um, for identifying what the need is um, and to be able to impact that. Um, I, I think you're right, Roy. I think we're going to, we're going to look back on this and we're just going to celebrate the, just so many lives saved. Um, and, uh, we appreciate the work you do. We appreciate, um, uh, the future that is bright. Um, and, uh, we look forward to what is to come. Thanks guys.
All right. Thank you all. You've been listening to Medic Class Citizen. If you like what you heard, check out our website at www.medicclasscitizen.com. Also, find us on social media where you can follow, like, subscribe, and share. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and we also have videos on YouTube. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.